0: We are building future cities today. Right now, every building that pops up, it's gonna last another 50, 100 years, right? And if we don't change the way we do this right now, if we don't repurpose our pipes, rethink the way we do plumbing, we are actually impacting our future in a serious way
1: Every day in America, around six billion gallons of clean, safe drinking water disappear. That water vanishes when water mains break, when pipes leak. That's 9,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools every day. I'm Jay Famiglietti. On this episode of What About Water? We look at the role governments play in fixing and maintaining water lines and systems. The pipes most of us don't see pipes most of us take for granted, pipes that are aging, underfunded, and under pressure. Nusha Ajami says it's not too late to act. She's the chief development officer for research for the Earth and Environmental Sciences area at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. She was the founding director of Urban Water Policy at Stanford's Water in the West program, and she was part of the National Science Foundation Initiative Reinventing the Nation's Urban Water Infrastructure. Nusha joins us from San Francisco. Welcome back to What About Water, Nusha. It's great to have you on again. It's wonderful to be here. Let's get to talking about some of the problems. Last year, at this time, millions of people in Texas were cut off from clean drinking water after a massive winter storm, damaged water lines and pipes. Would you say that experience in Texas points to a larger
0: problem? <laughs> Yes, for sure. I think the infrastructure we have, we built it in the 20th century and uh, with all the understanding that we had at the time and also the climate of that time. And as we're facing new challenges, uh, our infrastructure is not apt to deal with these new challenges. I always say we have 20th century infrastructure, 21st century problems, and they don't perfectly match. Infrastructure is a very hard thing to put in place. If you think about it, it's very expensive. And actually, water is so much of an out of sight, out of mind kind of a thing. People don't think about it. The water comes out of their tap. If you ask them where your water is coming from, often they don't know. If you ask them what happens for the water to get to your home, what process, they don't know. If you ask them what they're paying for, they don't know. And they definitely do not know where water goes after they use it. So why is that? It's very similar to all the roads and highways and other infrastructure, every other roads that we have on the ground. Very similar complexity happens underground, but we don't see it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people are often are not thinking about it. For example in the east coast we still have wooden pipes that are still part of the system in the west coast we you know a lot of our dams and uh, aqueducts and infrastructure was built a long time ago and because of groundwater overdraft that we have had which you are very familiar with some of these infrastructure is actually falling apart because of the subsidence that's happening so so we are definitely in a situation that we we don't want to be and Often utilities, in order to keep their price of water down, they defer maintenance for a long time because it's uh, it takes a you know a lot of resources to invest in maintain our system, and you know if you're not taking care of it, it's like a road. If you keep potholes, it keep happening and keep happening. Eventually, it will fall apart. It strikes me,
1: Nusha, that this is not an easy sell to the general public when you're trying to raise tax dollars, or if you're a politician and you. You know, if it's not Flint, Michigan, and there's a lead problem, then if you say, I'm going to replace these pipes, I'm going to replace the water main. That's not the same thing as like a new library or some, you know, big new program.
0: Absolutely. And also, brand new things are shiny. You can cut red tape. But, you know, replacing pipes and, and maintaining pumps does not have that effect. So the 20th century mindset of in infrastructure was it's everything that you built with steel and concrete and now we are realizing actually infrastructure is a broader thing you know we have to maintain our forest as a natural infrastructure that way we make sure we have water or we have to you know not put asphalt and concrete everywhere in our cities because we want to make sure water has a place to go and doesn't end up causing flooding
1: but still there's something like ASC, American Society of Civil Engineers, tells us there's something like over 2 million miles, 2 million miles of underground pipes. It's like an underground river system, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's like a whole network. I mean, how do we get to this point where it's it's just in such bad shape?
0: OK, if you're a brand new system you're building, everybody is excited about. Replacing it is much more difficult. And I think one other problem here is we never set up this system with a lot of monitoring to sort of track what's going on, where we are losing water, where we have little cracks that eventually would f- turn into breaks. I mean, there are new technologies now that utilities can use to uh, figure out what's going on underground. But Honestly, often it's so expensive and burdensome to know exactly how these systems operate that it's costly. Another piece of that is that we have too many water utilities. We have about like 50,000, 60,000 water utilities, and they're not all made from the same cloth like they don't have the same technological capacity they don't have the same managerial capacity financial capacity human capacity bigger utilities are much better at maintaining their assets and paying attention to how how it's aging but the smaller ones they barely get by so they don't really have the resources to invest or maintain the system very well so so that's also that that is an issue as well
1: Nusha, can you help us understand whose job is it ultimately to manage the water pipes and the water lines? Is it the feds, is it the local government, or is it this mishmash that you were just referring to?
0: I would say definitely the mishmash, uh, depending on where you are in the pipeline. Obviously, federal government has a specific role. There are some dams and infrastructure that they do operate under the Army Corps of Engineers. Then they provide that water to regional water agencies. Then they sell it to local water agencies. So there are so many different layers. I think this mishmash that we just talked about, sometimes work, sometimes doesn't work. And the, the further down you are on the pipeline, the harder it is sometimes to influence the process because when it comes to allocating money to invest in infrastructure, sometimes we don't know who should get the money. Should we give it to EPA? Should we give it to Interior? Should we give it to USDA? Should we have other groups? Should we give it locally? Should we give it to states? And then it gets divided in so many different ways and nothing is left on the table at the end.
1: That sounds really confusing. So given that we have the the mishmash and all these different agencies, you know, we've got cities, we've got counties, we've got water districts, et cetera, et cetera. We've got state stuff, we've got federal stuff. Do you think if we had to like map out our underground like water infrastructure pipes, you know, we could actually do it?
0: Actually, there have been a few universities that are looking into this, trying to gather blueprints from different utilities to create a centralized place for this kind of data, which is absolutely great. The problem is when it comes to water, eighty percent of water utilities or water agencies are public, twenty percent are private, and these public utilities, you know, they do have all this information, but they're not very willing to share just because they never, ne- you never know what people can find within them. In the East Coast, they have all the data, but they can't even share it with even researchers to use it, just because there's a lot of restriction. On how, but, but you know, I think if we want to manage our water better, we need to have better data and we need to have a better accounting system. That's where water is really, really behind. We don't even have individual meters on people's homes, let alone having a good centralized place with data.
1: It makes that, that job of keeping track of doing the water accounting. Just like you would be accounting for money, you know, accounting for water is... So much more challenging. Do you have any examples where you know that um, climate change is intensifying problems with our water infrastructure and water mains?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the West Coast is the perfect example for that because we are having a lot more heat waves and a hotter drought period. So now droughts are not only like less precipitation, we are getting a lot of higher temperatures as well. And that higher temperature makes the snow melt faster. And then when the snow melts faster, the reservoirs that we have are not built to get that snow melt much earlier than they should. And that means that they have to let the water go in order to be able to manage for the next flooding or next intensified rain that they have to manage. So on top of that, we have this new phenomenon that people might have heard of, it's called weather whiplash. One week is cold, one week is hot. One week we get precipitation, snow, one week it's so hot that everything melts at the same time. So it's kind of like going from winter to summer, winter to summer very quickly within a season. Again, our infrastructure system is not built for something like that.
1: So the the, the whiplash in time, we get it here, but pe- I don't know that people here are really paying attention to it. And it's so cold that, you know, they're just happy that it's getting warmer. But just some examples, we've had several weeks this winter where, and I'll use Fahrenheit, that it's been minus 30 Fahrenheit. In the next week, it will be 30 Fahrenheit, right? Think about that. And it's gone like that a few times. And I don't know that, you know, it's just happening. And then people are so
0: thankful, right? They're like, oh, because, but like, this is not normal, right? No, not at all. And I think that is why, like, we are having a problem with our infrastructure because we didn't used to have this. We used to have seasonal yep. variability, right? We would have winter with snow. Snow would be up on the mountain waiting for the warmer season to melt, and then we would have enough water in the reservoir. But one thing that we experienced last year in California, the the land was so parched because we had another very dry year the year before. So some of the reservoirs were emptied to prepare for the snowmelt to come in. Some of it directly went from snow to water vapor, and some of it just went down and poof, gone. And a lot of utilities were actually quite impacted by that because they didn't get enough runoff in their reservoirs
1: yeah and and it's not the kind of thing they would be planning for.
0: Not at all. We also have a name now for that. It's called sublimation. Which, yes you know, we have studied that in physics, yes. but we have never experienced that, or we didn't used to experience this in our daily lives as much. so here's another impact of climate change. So let me ask you this. What happens if we don't act? Look, I think we need to, if you want to survive, at least in the Western U.S., we have to, right? This area does not have enough water to maintain the lifestyle we want to keep. Now, we can all survive here if we change our lifestyle and think about it differently. If we really understand this is a dry region and requires a different kind of water consumption. Um, However, this is not just a West Coast problem. East Coast has its own problems, you know, water quality problems. Um, The less water we use, the less water we need to treat. The less water goes in the system, the easier it is to maintain the storm pipes and wastewater pipes, especially in the East Coast, because they're combined in the same place. And also the East Coast actually now, in their own way, experiencing drought in different years, just because the amount of water that they get is less than it used to be. So we have to be a lot more mindful. And also it's not just for Us as individuals. At the government level, we are not also thinking about water as an important element to focus on. For example, we are doing all this energy transition, but we are not thinking, what's the water footprint of that energy transition? Do we really have enough resources to maintain something like that? So it's kind of like we have to give water the value it needs.
1: Nusha, in the United States alone, we have these 2.2 million miles of water pipes that we discussed earlier and they are starting to crumble. You're seeing some good work happening in California. Tell us about that.
0: Sure, yeah, I mean, I live in the city of San Francisco, and we have started requiring buildings that are bigger than 200, thousand square foot, and now actually we even made that more restrictive, thousand square foot and higher, they have to put onsite reuse systems, which means that they can take the water from their tap and their showers and then reuse it for flushing down toilets or watering outdoor spaces. When San Francisco started this, everybody was thinking, this is only a dense city kind of a solution, but the reality is we are seeing it more and more happening on tech campuses, on sport facilities. So that's definitely one thing that we see. And also the fact that a lot of people in California live in semi-arid areas, but they like to have English gardens, which, you know, doesn't make sense. But we see a huge transition at that end as well. A lot of people are replacing their outdoor spaces So the transition is slowly happening, but I would say we are building future cities today. Right now, every building that pops up, it's gonna last another 50, 100 years, right? And if we don't change the way we do this right now, if we don't repurpose our pipes, rethink the way we do plumbing, We are actually impacting our future in a serious way, so it would be great to see a lot more people embracing recycling at different scales. We use the same amount of water in our showers than we use in our toilets. Why can't we just connect them somehow? You know, there are so many things we can do. We are doing a lot of groundwater recharge projects across the state, which would maintain our groundwater systems. And replacing pipes is definitely important. So a lot of utilities are actually trying to tap into the infrastructure money to be able to replace their degrading pipes. And I think one thing I didn't mention, which is very important, this whole leak prevention, right? A lot of leaking is happening in these pipes. And that's the water that we are losing to an aging infrastructure. That need, I mean, just preventing that can give us a lot more water, you know? But utilities don't have a lot of money for these maintenance systems. That's the problem. They don't like uh, incremental solutions.
1: So who else is doing things right? We've talked a lot about California, but how about other states or countries? Where are you seeing innovation in in water infrastructure?
0: Denmark. Right now in Denmark, people are using between 22 and 28 gallons per person per day, which is very low. The lowest we have right now in the U.S. is San Francisco, which is about... 40 gallon per person per day so that's you know cutting that in half so one project i'm very excited about this is this uh, 50 liter home which is a sort of like a global coalition between uh, a few industry leaders academic institutions ngos Their goal is to build homes that only use 50 liter per person which is quite low if you think about it um, and their goal is basically to use and reuse water as much as they can within the building uh, or within a home. For example, using the sink water and shower water for toilets or for laundry machine and also for irrigation. So there's so much that can be done if you think about our sink water and shower water. They're basically clean. We just use a lot, a little bit of soap in that process, so it can be easily cleaned and repurposed. Because every drop of water that we use needs to be, we use energy and resources to clean it up and bring it to us and take it away. So the less we use, the less energy needs to be used.
1: That's amazing, amazing stuff. And we need to be doing more, right? Reuse, 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 recycle, recycle, recycle. <laughs>
0: that's, the, that's the mantra. I know everybody is very enthusiastic and curious about desalination. And um, I think desalination is sort of, I, your last solution in a sense that you should do everything else and then build the desal just because it's much more expensive. It's harder to maintain. Another very, very cool effort that's going on across the West and actually internationally being embraced as well is the groundwater recharge effort, trying to kind of use natural systems as a way of storing water. Another area that I'm super excited about is using data and information to be better at the way we manage our water systems. And there are utilities that are embracing information technology or smart meters, better tracking systems. People have apps that they can see, okay, how much water I use for what purpose. So those are also very cool innovation that's happening across the board, um, which I'm excited about.
1: I I am too. And as you're uh, as we are talking about all this stuff, I'm I'm wondering how
0: do we pay for all of this? Right? Who's paying who's paying for it? Great question. I would say right now most of the utilities are focusing on this. I, I'll start from the data piece. It's another orphan piece of our water sort of investment process. It's very difficult for utilities to justify investing in data gathering and data systems because it's not called infrastructure, but the reality is data is infrastructure. (laughs) And a lot of utilities are trying to see how they can incorporate that as part of their infrastructure investment. A lot of utilities are doing it themselves. Now, interesting part of this is if people are putting on-site reuse systems on their homes, it's very similar to solar panels on people's roofs. So individuals are paying for it and hopefully they make up their money by uh, reducing their water bill. So very little of that is coming from federal government, but definitely some of that through state-revolving loans or money from EPA that goes into those loans. It's very fragmented when it comes to who is investing in it, definitely not top-down
1: wonder what we need to do to raise awareness about, about all of this. I mean, the understanding of all these different components as infrastructure, the understanding of the need for financial innovations, as you mentioned before, the need to value water much better. I mean, how do we raise awareness? How do you and I raise awareness? How are you doing it?
0: <laughs> okay, thank you. Thinking about the mindlessness that we have towards water, right? Just starts from knowing where your water comes from, where it goes, right? Then it comes from how much water we are using in our homes. Um, Do you know what's the biggest crop that we grow in the US, irrigated crop? Grass, right? Which is crazy. Um, We don't even eat it, (laughs) we don't use it, (laughs) we don't need it. It's all about making us feel good, right? So kind of, um, it, it's mind-blowing, right? And so so it's kind of like, that's one part of the issue. Awareness at the individual level is extremely important because it's not unlimited amount of water that we can take and use. Beyond that, it's more about trying to make sure I anticipate what governments or decision makers needs in their hand when they're making these decisions. And another Piece of what I personally do, and I know you have done as well, is trying to dedicate my time to service by sitting on a lot of government or city boards to be a voice in that process, and you know volunteer my time on that. In that end, so mm-hmm.
1: well, we certainly appreciate all that you do. Um, it's it's a pretty incredible. Last question: How about ordinary people, our listeners? What can they do? As individuals?
0: Again, I think if you have outdoor spaces, you should rethink how you're using water out, outdoors. I know individuals right now in California, for example, are looking into using their tap water or their laundry water for their outdoor spaces. If you have a capacity or the means to do that, I think that's, if you really want to have an outdoor, very lush outdoor space, that's one thing to think about how to set of a grey water system. It can be as simple as making sure you close the tap and you're brushing your teeth or not keeping the water running while you're running your garbage disposal or taking shorter showers or replacing your toilet. Making sure you have high efficiency appliances in your home, you know. I know more and more of those are becoming the norm everywhere we go, but there are still a lot of old homes that they use old fixtures and appliances. So those definitely can be replaced. And also, again, I think it starts from knowing where your water comes from and where it goes and valuing it. You know, we don't pay for water as a resource. We pay for the services we receive and, um, and making sure that it's valued and we know, how precious it is! I think it's extremely important, and some of these activities can really help us to bring what our water use.
1: That's that's great advice, Nusha. What I what I just got from you was that although you had a, a list of lots of uh, opportunities, even just taking one step, it's not it's not expensive to to kill off your lawn. It's uh, it's it's cheap. And there are there are rebates, right? There are programs all around, you know, North America for replacing turf. And so, I hope that our listeners don't get overwhelmed. Although there are many options for things for people to do, you know, you just take one step, or one step at a time, and it, we can have a huge impact. Well, that was really um, a lot of fun, Nusha. Thanks for joining us again. Always a pleasure, and I hope we can have you back again in another season.
0: Absolutely, would love that. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation.
1: Nusha Ajami is the Chief Development Officer for Research at the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs Earth and Environmental Sciences Area. Governments not only have to step up to protect water infrastructure, they have a role to play in protecting water itself. Chile is one of the most water-stressed countries in the world. Large industries there hold huge rights to water. That puts tremendous pressure on Chile's small scale farmers, on the people growing Chile's food. That's something Carolina Vilchez wants to change. She's an elected member of Chile's Constitutional Convention, a group rewriting Chile's laws to redistribute water rights.
2: Soy Carolina Vilches My name is Carolina Vilches Fuensalida. I am a constituent of District 6 in Chile, a country which has been devastated by extractivism and neoliberalism. This model has led into an unprecedented climate and ecological crisis, and so-called development is leading to the destruction and degradation of territories affecting the health of communities and putting future generations at risk hablamos extractivismo modelo neoliberal, when we talk about extractivism and the neoliberal model, we are referring to economically productive activities that exploit ecosystems. therefore, protecting water and all its forms is essential and urgent. in Chile There is a market based on water, where a small group of people in power profit from a common good that belongs to everyone. This is the case with mining, forestry hydroelectric dams, animal breeding for export, and also agro-industrial monocultures, and many other activities, and the main thing they have in common is the intensive use of water and soils. From our perspective, it is urgent and vital to protect, restore, and regenerate water cycles to redistribute water according to the needs of the people who suffer from monopolization and privatization of its vital element. It is imperative to eradicate the current water code that allows water rights holders to be owners of mechanisms of water and to change its legal nature. That is why, as an eco-constituent, and as part of Modatima, the movement for the defense of access to water, land and environmental protection, together with a group of eco-constituents, We presented the Water Statute, which calls for the creation of a new institutional framework. It addresses the role of the state, its responsibility to ensure the human right to water, and management through watershed councils, thus proposing community management of water and participatory water networks. This is our moment. This is our project, to protect access to water for the common good, to protect water for our communities and territories.
1: Carolina Vilches is a Chilean community activist. Last May, she was elected to help rewrite Chile's constitution. Under her country's new laws, she's trying to make sure water gets official protection. That's it for this episode of What About Water. It's produced by the Waller's Lab and the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. We record and produce this podcast on Treaty 6 territory, the homeland of First Nations and Métis people. Our crew here at What About Water is Mark Ferguson, Aaron Stevens, Laura McFarlane, Fred Reben, Jesse Widow, Sean Ahmed, and Andrea Rowe. Our audio engineer is Wayne Giesbrecht, and our producers are Farah Akhtar and Jen Cannell. We'd love to hear from you. Visit whataboutwater.org. I'm Jay Famiglietti. Thanks for listening.